Good morning. This uh, hearing on the Subcommittee of the Western Hemisphere, Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues will come to order. I th thank you for uh, being here today. The title of this hearing is Cartels and the U.S. Heroin Epidemic, Combating Drug Violence and Public Health Crisis. Uh, before we begin the meeting on a matter of personal privilege, I wanted to acknowledge the contributions of a uh, loyal and a dedicated staffer, because behind every one of us here in the Senate, there's loyal and really hardworking people. Literally, they sit behind us at these meetings, and they, they do all the hard work behind the scenes to make sure that we are briefed and prepared to cast votes and advance public policy that makes a difference. And uh, since 2011, Ma Maggie Doherty has been an instrumental part of our policy team, and she's logged in countless hours working on all sorts of complex and important issues for our office. She's also logged in countless hours sitting behind us here in these committee meetings, and, uh, but no longer. Today is Maggie's uh, last Senate Foreign Relations Committee meeting, and in a week's time, she'll depart our office to even a bigger and better opportunity. So I just briefly wanted to thank her for everything she's done for us. We're very proud of her work. So the title of this hearing, The Cartels and U.S. Heroin Epidemic, uh, we have two panels testifying. The first is an official panel that will feature Mr. Daniel Foote, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement at the U.S. Department of State and Mr. Kemp Chester, uh, the Associate Director for the National Heroin Coordinator Group for the Office of National Drug Control Policy. The second panel will present the Honorable Teresa Jacobs, the Mayor of Orange County, Florida, and Mr. Stephen Dudley, the Co-Director of Insight Crime. Thank you all for being here today. We appreciate your time. We appreciate your dedication. And I'd also like to thank all of those who worked alongside my staff in, in making this hearing possible. Drug cartels operate out of countries in the Western Hemisphere, and they do so by using sophisticated distribution systems that move narcotics into and across the United States. Heroin supplied by these cartels has created a public health epidemic and fueled drug violence across this country. The heroin epidemic, drug war, and fight against drug violence are unfortunately becoming part of everyday events in our society. It is our duty to find the best possible avenues and allocate resources to provide the best tools to equip those on the front lines to fight this public health crisis. We need to examine what the United States, Mexico, and other regional partners are doing to cooperatively address the rise in heroin and in drug trafficking, promoting the efficacy and proper execution of U.S. initiatives to stop the spread of heroin and combat the drug cartels should be one of our top priorities. Here's some facts. One of the primary culprits in this fight is called fentanyl. It is a synthetic opiate that is 25 to 40 times more potent than heroin, and it may be used to treat pain associated with advanced cancer. While fentanyl is legally prescribed in the United States, the CDC states that most cases of fentanyl-related overdoses are associated with non-pharmaceutical fentanyl. It's a type used as a substitute for heroin or mixed with heroin or other drugs, sometimes without the user's knowledge. In 2015, D D the DEA's National Drug Threat Assessment Summary reported that Mexico and China have been cited as the primary source country, through so, though some analogs of fentanyl are manufactured in China. These supplies are often trafficked into the United States, across the southwest border, or delivered through mail couriers. Transnational criminal organizations also use Florida as the point of arrival for South American cocaine and heroin. Much of the illegally diverted and produced fentanyl is found in the same U.S. markets where white powder heroin is found. According to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the estimated number of individuals who used heroin was 914,000 people in 2014. 
In addition, there are about 586,000 individuals, or basically 0.2% of the 12 and older population, had a heroin disorder in 2014. While there's been an increase of heroin overdoses and heroin-related deaths across the United States, the Midwest, and the Northeast regions have been areas of particular concern. To this day, the administration's efforts, heroin-related overdose, to, to this day, despite the administration's efforts, heroin-related overdose deaths increased by 244% between 07 and the year 2013. The U.S. has responded to such findings by launching the heroin response strategy leveraging upon the 15 high-intensity drug trafficking areas across the country. Mexico, our regional partner, has displayed willingness to cooperate with U.S. authorities. But despite these operations, the International Narcotics Control Strategy Report estimates that less than 2% of cocaine that comes through Mexico is seized by this country's authorities. Under the Merida Initiative, Congress has provided billions in funds to, Mex to the Mexican government to improve security and the rule of law, and I applaud the continued efforts of the Mexican government to continue its drug crop eradication efforts and to arrest drug kingpins. However, we are still far from the finish line. I think the Congress can continue to work in constructive ways to promote legislation addressing opiate abuse. I'm proud to be the co-sponsor of the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, a bipartisan bill that overwhelmingly passed the Senate. I also applaud the House for working to address this issue, and I hope soon we will be able to send this legislation to the President's desk. It is my hope that today's hearing will shed light on the consequences that this epidemic will have in our society and future generations if left unaddressed and not given its proper attention. I'm optimistic this hearing will serve as the opportunity to learn about the administration's priorities in combating the heroin epidemic and drug violence. And I hope you'll address these issues in your testimony as well. With that, I would now turn it over to our ranking member, Senator Boxer, uh, for her opening statement. Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for holding this important hearing. First, I would ask if I could put in the record Senator Cardin's uh, opening statement. Without objection. Thank you so much. The abuse of illegal and legal drugs in America is an absolute crisis. And to fight it, we need to act on many fronts. Take the case of opioids. These are legal prescription drugs that are killing approximately 125 people every single day here at home. The CDC says that in 2014, 47,000 people died from opioid abuse. Ima just imagine that. We need to do much more than we've done so far to put real dollars behind the effort to stop this madness. Then there's the issue we'll focus on today of illegal drugs being transported into this country. Recently, I visited Costa Rica and I learned that this peaceful country is very alarmed about drug cartels infiltrating their population. We must help them stop this real threat, and I hope to ask a question about that. And while we are working cooperatively with the Mexican government, specifically an initiative called the Merida Initiative, and while we have to date seized more than four billion in narcotics and illicit currency, let's face it, that is a drop in the bucket. We simply have to address the demand in the United States for these lethal products. And I know that is not your job, and I'm not going to even ask you about that, but I'm making a statement as a United States Senator. We have to address the demand in the United States for these lethal products. Supply and demand go hand in hand. A long time ago, I was uh, an economics major. It's like Economics 101. When, 
when people demand a product, we know what happens. The supply will come. And when even more people demand a product, the price will go up and it goes around in a circle. Years ago, too many to even mention. So I don't even know where my chairman was at that time. It was so long ago, very long. When I first came to Congress, I wrote a bill called Treatment on Demand. Because what I found out, Mr. Chairman and members, is that when there's a person in America with a terrible addiction at that time, and it is still true today, they wake up one day and they say, I've done it, I've had it, I need a new life. They can't get in anywhere. So people say, very good, come back in two weeks. Well, that, this is an emergency circumstance in many ways, but it's not considered that. So they'll go in, maybe they'll get a pat on the back, come back in two weeks, and by then, maybe they've even overdosed. Now, I know we're working with Colombia and Guatemala, helping farmers develop alternatives to opium production. But again, we need to be even more aggressive in our policies regarding drug production, trafficking, and here at home, consumption. In California, we have four of those areas that my chairman spoke about that are designated as high-intensity drug trafficking areas by the Obama administration. I am extremely grateful to the administration. Uh, we had that help under George Bush as well. When you, do, when you identify an area, it means you're going to get some attention, some federal dollars, some federal help, because a lot of these local people, uh, our police forces and so on, really do need that help. So I'm very grateful for that. We've also discovered tunnels from Mexico to San Diego, which act as conduits for thousands of pounds of cocaine. And this points to the continuous challenges we face in dealing with these dangerous cartels. They are really good at what they do, and they intimidate everyone. And that's why this fight is so critical. We need even stronger partnerships with Mexico and other countries in the region. And I want to say this, alienating our Latin American neighbors and our Latinos here at home is the worst possible thing we can do. First of all, on a human level, because in my view, it's prejudice and bigotry. But it doesn't make sense if we're really trying to crack down on these cartels. We need our friends to work with us. We don't need to escalate uh, some kind of ridiculous uh, debate about walls and all the rest. I do want to thank our witnesses for being here today. There's a lot of burden on you, and this is, this is very difficult. This, the war on drugs has not been a success, and I think the reason is we haven't done enough on the demand side or on any side. <laughs> we, we need to do much better, and I want to thank my chairman because I think this is really well-timed given what we're facing with the opioid crisis. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Boxer. I, before we begin with the testimony, I did want to recognize a senior senator from New Jersey who's done an extreme, extreme amount of work on Western Hemisphere issues, but also the issues regarding transnational crime, if he wanted to give any opening comment. Okay, great. With that, um, let, uh, I want to please join me in welcoming our first witness, Mr. Mr. Foote. Thank you for your testimony before us here today. Chairman Rubio, Senator Boxer, Senator Menendez, Senator Gardner. Thank you for this opportunity to appear before you to discuss the work of the State Department's Bureau of International Affairs and law, 
of Bureau of Narcot I'll be okay. Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs to combat the production and trafficking of heroin, particularly by Mexican-based drug trafficking organizations that are responsible for the vast majority of the heroin on America's streets today. In the United States, we face an epidemic of opioid abuse. Well over half of the more than 47,000 American deaths from drugs last year were due to either domestically produced controlled prescription pain relievers or heroin, which is often combined with other deadly drugs such as fentanyl. In Mexico, drug trafficking organizations have killed tens of thousands of citizens, and these organizations continue to foment violence, instability, corruption, and addiction. This scourge is broader than just the United States, and we will not solve it alone. The overwhelming majority of the heroin in the U.S. is produced or distributed by Mexican drug trafficking organizations. For many years, they have been trafficking not only heroin, but also much of the cocaine, methamphetamine, and other illicit drugs that enter our country. Most of these drugs enter through our border with Mexico. The United States and Mexico developed the Merida Initiative in 2007 with major focus on combating the production and trafficking of illicit drugs across our borders. Today, the Peña Nieto and Obama administrations remain committed to Merida's strategic goals. Our Merida partnership, which brings together significant investments and capabilities of both countries, continues to help build Mexico's capacity to fight narcotics trafficking organized crime, and violence. Together, we are aggressively responding to this threat by putting the leaders of drug trafficking organizations in jail, by seizing their drugs and money, and by dismantling their organizations. Today, through Merida, INL is professionalizing and building the capacity of Mexican law enforcement agencies, supporting the Mexican government's efforts to strengthen border management and security, and helping advance reform across Mexico's justice sector. Bilaterally, we have agreed that targeting the production and trafficking of heroin, as well as fentanyl and other dangerous synthetic substances, is a top shared priority. To that end, INL and DEA are providing training to law enforcement officers, investigators, and analysts, increasing Mexico's ability to identify, investigate, and dismantle clandestine heroin and fentanyl labs. With our interagency partners, we're also improving information sharing between our governments on heroin and fentanyl, working together to get better assessments on opium poppy cultivation and heroin and fentanyl production in Mexico, and continuing to explore other avenues to enhance our bilateral cooperation and effectiveness. Building strong, effective Mexican justice sector institutions capable of confronting organized criminal enterprises is a difficult long-term challenge. This work must be sustained for it is only through a committed, coordinated effort that sustainable capacity to deter the cultivation, production, and trafficking of illicit drugs will be strengthened. The significant investments of both of our governments are producing results, and with your continued support, this successful collaboration with Mexico will continue. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Foote. Uh, Mr. Kim Chester, Associate Director for the National Health Heroin Coordination Group, uh, please uh, begin your testimony. Thank you. Uh, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Boxer, and members of the subcommittee, thank you for inviting me here this morning 
to discuss the public health and public safety issues resulting from heroin use, the government of Mexico's efforts to reduce the availability of heroin in the United States, and U.S.-Mexico cooperation to address heroin issues in both countries. In 2014, the most current year for which we have data, more than 47,000 Americans, or approximately 129 people each day, died from a drug overdose. The threat posed uh, of the overdose deaths in 2014, 22% involved heroin. The threat posed by heroin has continued to grow dramatically over the past several years, and since 2007, deaths involving heroin have risen 340% from 2,402 in 2007 to 10,574 in 2014. Heroin use has spread into suburban and rural communities and is growing among most socioeconomic classes, age groups, and races. Mexico is currently the primary supplier of heroin to the United States, with Mexican drug traffickers cultivating, cultivating opium poppy, producing heroin, and smuggling the finished product into the United States. Poppy cultivation in Mexico has increased substantially in recent years, rising from 17,000 hectares in 2014 to 28,000 hectares in 2015, which could yield potential production of 70 metric tons of pure heroin. The heroin crisis is being compounded by the reemergence of illicit fentanyl, a powerful synthetic opioid more potent than heroin. Illicit fentanyl is sometimes mixed with powder heroin to increase its effects or mixed with dilutants and sold as synthetic heroin. Increasingly, fentanyl is being pressed into pill form and sold as counterfeit prescription opioid pills. The majority of the illicit fentanyl in the U.S. is clandestinely produced in Mexico or in China. Fentanyl is extremely dangerous and deadly. In 2014, there were more than 5,544 drug overdose deaths involving synthetic narcotics other than methadone, a category that includes fentanyl. This number has more than doubled from two years earlier. U.S.-Mexico engagement regarding heroin has been robust. In October 2015, ONDCP Director Michael Botticelli participated in a bilateral security dialogue where the importance of increased poppy eradication efforts by the government of Mexico, as well as drug interdiction, clandestine laboratory destruction, and the, and the disruption of precursor chemical trafficking were all highlighted. In early March, Director Botticelli, Ambassador William Brownfield, the Assistant Secretary of State for International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, and I met with the Mexican Attorney General Gomez, and she announced her role as the synchronizer of Mexico's efforts to disrupt the production of heroin and illicit fentanyl. Importantly, we agreed then to jointly develop a focused national plan to concentrate Mexico's efforts against heroin and fentanyl. The urgent need to sustain progress toward addressing the nation's heroin and fentanyl crisis requires increased collaboration between federal agencies and with our partners working at the state, local, and tribal level where the crisis is felt most deeply. In November 2015, the team that I lead, the National Heroin Coordination Group, was created within the Office of National Drug Control Policy to form the hub of a network of interagency partners who will leverage their home agency authorities and resources and to harmonize interagency activities against the heroin and fentanyl supply chains to the United States. The ONDCP-funded high-intensity drug trafficking areas, or HIDA program, 
the locally based program that responds to drug trafficking issues facing specific areas of the country has also been instrumental. In August 2015, ONDCP committed $2.5 million in HIDA funds to develop a heroin response strategy. This innovative project combines prevention, education, intelligence, and enforcement resources to address the heroin threat through seven regional HIDAs covering 17 states and the District of Columbia. So while we have laid a firm foundation to address the heroin crisis, much remains to be accomplished. For example, we do have gaps in our capability to detect illicit fentanyl at our borders, and our Mexican partners could certainly do more in the areas of opium poppy eradication and clandestine laboratory identification and neutralization. And while my remarks have focused on addressing the supply side of the opioid crisis, we must address opioid use disorders with a balanced approach that also regards addiction as a public health matter, using substance abuse prevention and treatment strategies and recovery support services. In his FY 2017 budget, President Obama proposed $1 billion in new mandatory funding to expand the availability of evidence-based strategies such as medication-assisted treatment and to extend the availability of substance abuse treatment providers. ONDCP will continue to work with our international partners, federal government departments and agencies, and our partners at the state, local, and tribal levels to reduce heroin and fentanyl production and trafficking and the profound effect these dangerous drugs are having in our communities. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today, and I would be happy to answer any of your questions. Thank you, and I am going to uh, defer my questions, because I know members need to be in other places, and I'll basically be here throughout the duration, and so I'll turn over to the ranking member for her questions. Thanks, I just have two questions for Mr. Foote. So Mr. Chester, breathe <coughs> off the hook here. Um, Mr. Foote, in 2008, Mexico's Congress passed a series of significant reforms to its criminal procedures, new laws <clears throat> to promote greater access to justice and strengthen measures to combat organized crime, measures that would make the Mexican justice system look a little bit more like our own. These reforms were intended to be implemented by 2016. Where does the implementation of these judicial reforms stand, and how has the United States assisted in this process and um, how do you feel about the, whether they're really doing what they committed to do? Thank you, Senator. Uh, as you know, Mexico committed and passed legislation to implement a new criminal justice uh, system, which is an accusatorial justice system, much like ourselves. Uh, at this point, of the 32 Mexican states, 24 have implemented this with federal level, level crimes, and I believe nine have implemented it at state level crimes. Uh, obviously, this is a long-term process, and uh, some of the states in Mexico will not meet next month's deadline. We remain committed and continue to work closely with them on a number of issues. Uh, thanks to the gracious appropriations of Congress, we have dedicated approximately $250 million to these efforts between Department of State and USAID uh, through issues such as training judges, prosecutors, courtroom personnel, law students. Uh, over 4,000 have been trained to date through Department of Justice's OPDAT prosecutorial training program. 
We also have a number of law school and, and institutional exchange programs through the American Bar Association and a number of universities here in the, the United States. Uh, we are preparing law enforcement for their new roles in the accusatorial justice sector. For instance, our Department of Justice partners in ISITAP have trained thousands of law enforcement in crime scene investigations, provide equipment for units and forensics, uh, fingerprinting uh, and other collection there so that Mexico can comply with international standards. Okay, thank you. I, what I'm getting from you is that there is progress being made, although not everyone will meet the deadline. It's, a, it's an optimistic um, report. And so that leads me to my final question, which I alluded to in my, in my statement. As we continue to work with the Mexican government, and that's just critical, we have to. We have to work here at home to reduce the demand. We have to work across the border to reduce the supply. And that's where the rubber meets the road in both of these areas, but we need to work with Mexico. I'm concerned about the rhetoric in the presidential campaign describing our relationship with Mexico. I know it's a tough question for you. I just want you to say what you feel in your heart because I, we need to know. Mexican officials have said on the record that some of the proposal mentioned on the campaign trail, we know who we're talking about here, a candidate who's talking about building a wall, having Mexico do it, insulting Mexican-Americans here at home, that, that, that some of the proposals would have a cataclysmic effect on our bilateral relations. Has this divisive rhetoric affected diplomatic relations with Mexico at this point? Has it impacted the United States' ability to work with the Mexican government to combat drug trafficking? And are you concerned that that type of rhetoric could just completely undermine what we're trying to do here? And just for the record, she's not talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> I am so not talking about you. Excellent. Uh, well, I will try to strike a balance between answering your question and not entering too deeply into our own uh, domestic politics here. Uh, I know it's a tough one, but you know what? When people talk, it has real life impacts, especially a presumptive nominee. You have all seen some of the reactions from south of the border, from our Mexican brothers and sisters. You've seen President Vicente Fox's reactions and others. Uh, from the embassy bilateral level to date, we continue to work very closely together. In my personal opinion, we don't, I do not believe it has gravely affected our ability to do business together. Mexico, in the last several months, has reiterate, reiterated its commitment to continuing with the Merida Initiative. Uh, where the populace of Mexico stands on this may be another matter, but we continue to be able to work closely together bilaterally on so all words. So the words haven't had an impact on what is going on at the very top levels, in your opinion, on the work that you are doing at this point? Not in their dealings with us. It's no. excellent. And now we have to make sure that those policies never come into effect. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Boxer. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for calling the hearing. It's an important one, and thank you both for your service uh, to our country. Mr. Foote, uh, how, how, um, 
How many agencies are involved in interdiction and eradication efforts with respect to Mexico's uh, border with us to meet uh, in our efforts to uh, stop interdiction, stop flows, use intelligence? How many agencies are involved? U.S. agencies, I hope, is what you're U asking U.S. Me. agencies. Thank you. Uh, INL, Department of State, you have Department of Justice, DEA, FBI to a certain extent, Department of Homeland Security is heavily involved through Customs and Border Protection, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, uh, Homeland Security investigations. Our military supports some of the border efforts of Mexico's military. Uh, and then we have some ancillary agencies who are based in Mexico City with while their chief focus isn't the border, they do peripherally work on it, such as ATF and the U.S. Marshals. And if you had to guess how much money has been spent on interdiction and eradication efforts uh, in Mexico since the start of the epidemic that we are experiencing here, what would you put it at? My understanding is 2.5 billion has been appropriated, of which approximately 1.5 billion has been obligated or committed to specific projects of which we still have at this point about new initiatives for about $700 million. Now, are you speaking just Merida specifically? Pardon me? Are you speaking just of Merida specifically? Largely. I, okay. I am not. There is money spent far beyond Merida. There, there certainly is, Senator. Uh, I am not in a position to comment on Department of Justice's appropriation. I just don't have the figures. That's something we could get. Yeah, for. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't looking just at appropriation. I, I look at all the agencies you mentioned, your own INL, Department of Justice, DEA, FBI, Homeland Security, Immigration, Military, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearm. And I think to myself, it has to be billions, collectively. And 1.5 billion, and I was one of the architects of the Medita Initiative, which I support. But 1.5 billion later, uh, billions between our, all of our respective agencies, and what we have is an opioid epidemic. And so one has to, as a policymaker, one has to take a step back and say to themselves, what's not working? Because something's not working. Uh, if billions of dollars later, what you see is a spike versus a trend in the other direction, then something's not working. So if I were to say to you, what's not working? What do we need to change? Your answer would be? First of all, Senator, I think we have, in the past few years, come to the realization that this is a shared responsibility between the United States and source countries and trafficking countries. Uh, I am heartened by the Senate's recent passing of the opioid legislation is something that is going to going to help us. Certainly Mexico specific, their capacities are far greater than they were when we started the Merida Initiative in 2007. Information sharing and collaboration has led our own U.S. law enforcement uh, agencies to interdict significantly more on our southern border due to Mexico cooperation. We still do have a way to go. Uh, I think we also need to get better here in the United States at uh, demand reduction and treating 
the health issues of addicted people. It is uh, a shared responsibility and it is no longer just a supply side issue. So as I listen to your response, it's everything that we're doing, but it is, except for the demand a more significant effort on demand reduction, but it isn't uh, suggesting that there's anything that we are not doing. And, and all I can look at and say, if you're spending billions and instead of the trend going the opposite direction, it is going, it is rising, you have to raise the question, what is it that we are either doing wrong or what is it that we are not doing that we need to do in order to meet the challenge? Because otherwise, we can appropriate billions and billions but still find ourselves in a trend that is undesirable. So the only thing I heard from you in, in your response to me was doing more in demand and reduction, which I certainly uh, believe is true. Uh, but I didn't hear about anything else. So, you know, you have to question whether or not the continuation of this type of expenditure in this manner is the right policy. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that there is sufficient coordination, a seamless coordination between at least on our side of the border as it relates to all the agencies that you suggested are engaged in this in this fight? Senator, obviously we can always get better at everything we do. Uh, Department of State kind of works from the southern border south, so I, I don't feel that it's our position to comment on interagency coordination north of the border. South of the border, we have robust interagency coordination through the country team at Embassy Mexico City. We can always get a little better there, but... Uh, uh, and it, Your Mexican partners, are they doing everything that they can in order to meet the challenge on their side of the border? During the beginning part of, the, of President Peña Nieto's administration, there was a pause in Plan Merida, as I think we did a mutual assessment of the security relationship, uh, particularly on their side. And over the past year and a half, we have seen much closer collaboration and unprecedented openness and frankness in our bilateral dialogue. To answer your question, is Mexico doing everything that they can? They could improve. Some of their efforts are not yet at the optimal level, but we remain optimistic and positive that they're moving in the right direction. Well, I, I appreciate the optimism, uh, but I'm seeking to introduce a little dose of realism into it. And so part of the challenge is that you have lawless states uh, in some of the northern part of Mexico where I've heard U.S. citizens from the region who have come to talk to me and say that many who had businesses, long-time relationships on the immediate other side of the border that basically cannot operate there because the federal government's presence, i.e. the federal government of Mexico's presence, is not there. So if you have lawlessness then, and if you have uncontrolled states, then you have the opportunity for drug traffickers to avail themselves of that. And it seems to me that while I am an incredibly strong and have been for 25 years supporter of the U.S.-Mexico relationship, we need to be honest in this relationship in order to make sure that we are making the progress that we need here and for Mexico to be able to regain its sovereignty over parts of northern Mexico that it presently doesn't have. 
Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Let me use some of my time that I yielded just to interject to follow up on that. Uh, Mr. Foote, would you, uh, uh, Secretary Foote, how would you assess the assertion made by a group of experts from the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights that there may have been another bus involved in the incident in which 43 students disappeared in Guerrero, Mexico, uh, that was packed with heroin bound for the U.S.? Senator, thank you for that question. Uh, Given that we have not seen the results of the final investigation from Mexico, I'm not in a great position to answer that question right now. We would be happy to answer that for the record in writing. Okay. Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses. Um, to, first, to get an idea of the scope of this challenge uh, on the, the Mexican side, in terms of the uh, black tar heroin, is the poppy production for this heroin still significantly con confined to the state of Nayarit, or is it more broadly uh, distributed? Mexico's a big country, so if we talk about a problem in Mexico, I worry that we're not being specific enough. Uh, <clears throat> yes, Senator. Uh, our, our latest uh, crop estimate uh, that, was, that was produced about two months ago shows two major growing areas in Mexico, uh, one uh, in the state of Guerrero, Mm -hmm. and then another in what's called the tri-border uh, region up, up in the northern part of the country. Those are the two major growing areas mm -hmm. uh, in Mexico uh, with very, very small kind of sporadic spots in other parts of the country, but they're basically concentrated in those two areas. And then in the, the fentanyl is made in labs, and I, I gather that most of the fentanyl that comes in is either coming in, it's made in China and maybe transited in through Mexico or also made in labs in Mexico. Are those the two main sources for fentanyl? That's correct. So, and, and, and I will tell you that our understanding and, and, and our awareness of, of fentanyl traffic is, uh, has evolved dramatically over the last six months mm -hmm. as, as, as we've seen the, uh, the crisis uh, rise. Uh, so in order of magnitude, I, I cannot tell you, but what I can tell you is that China is a significant supplier of fentanyl to the United States, where it is ordered by individuals on the dark web or on the internet, and then using parcel post or the postal service shipped directly to them. Mm -hmm. We also know that uh, fentanyl is uh, shipped into Mexico, uh, in some cases mixed with dilutants and smuggled across the southwest border, mm -hmm. uh, and that there are precursor chemicals that are shipped into Mexico that can be used for the production of fentanyl, clandestine fentanyl in laboratories in Mexico. So, so as, you, as you look at the vectors coming into the United States, those are the two main ones that we see for finished fentanyl coming into the United States or its manufacture in Mexico. I want to talk, um, Mr. Chester, about your written testimony. I, I'm sorry I didn't get here for your entire oral testimony, but. On page one, there are several principal factors contributing to the current nationwide heroin crisis. The increased availability of heroin in the U.S. market, the availability of pure forms of heroin that allow for non-intravenous use, its relatively low price, and a relatively small percentage of non-medical users of opioid prescription drugs transitioning to heroin. I'm, I'm trying to unpack that statement, um, and I'm wondering if your statement puts the, enough of a finger on the, uh, the, the prescription opioid problem. I have heard it stated through uh, Michael Botticelli and others that 80% of those who OD on heroin in this country, not fatal ODs, total uh, ODs, 80% of those who OD on heroin started their addiction to opioids by being addicted to prescription opioids and then transitioned to heroin because they could get it for a lower price. Is, is that an accurate statement? 
No, Senator, and, and, I, and I'm glad you, you, you asked that question. Um, of the numbers of individuals who, uh, who non-medically use opioids and then transition into heroin, that number is actually relatively small. It's who about 3.6%. non-medically use That's correct. So, so the non-medical use of a prescription opioid like OxyContin and, and, and kind of the, the traditional got it from the medicine cabinet, got it from mm -hmm. friends or family members, <clears throat> the percentage of those individuals who transition to heroin use is relatively low. It's about 3.6%. But conversely, of individuals who are non-treatment users of heroin, 80% of them actually abused a, a prescription opioid in the past. So, so while there's not a direct causation between the two, uh, the non-medical use of opioids is a strong risk factor for eventual heroin use. And even the medical use of opioids can be a risk factor for eventual heroin use, correct? Uh, it, it, yes, Senator, that's, th that's right. So, so um, you know, an opioid in and of itself and its effect on the body, obviously it's a very addictive drug mm -hmm. and affects the body in unique ways uh, as, an, as an opioid. So those individuals who take opioids, whether they get them from a doctor or whether they get them from a friend or a family member for non-medical reasons, uh, are, are at risk for, uh, for eventual opioid addiction if, if not used properly, that is correct. And you cite in the testimony, it's the relatively low price of heroin, and, and that's relatively low compared to past trends, but also compared to the cost of opioid-based prescription drugs, correct? That's correct. So, uh, so the, the, the street price of a gram of heroin compared to the street price, if you will, of, of an opioid pill or an oxy pill or something of that, of that nature, that's correct. That was, that's what we consider to be one of the contributing factors. And so it's the availability and the general low price and then the purity that have all been contributing factors to the current crisis that we're in with heroin. That's correct. Uh, Mr. Foote talked about, you know, uh, the work that we've done in this body and we're trying to harmonize with the House in this recent uh, CARA, Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act. We really believe it here, and I think it's now bipartisan, we're seeing in all of our states, that if we don't get a hold of the culture of overprescription of, uh, of opioid-based prescription drugs, you know, we're just hollowing out communities, rural, ur urban, suburban, rich and poor. And this was a drug addiction that came out of the medicine cabinet. In many instances, it was somebody, a trusted professional in a white coat that was handing somebody this uh, prescription saying, this is gonna do you good and it's not gonna do you harm. Um, driven by, you know, an inadequate science, driven by, frankly, marketing scams. Um, and, uh, and that is inextricably related to this heroin uh, issue. And so I think it's kind of hard to deal with the heroin issue in the abstract without talking about the, this culture of overprescription that hopefully we are working together to reel in. Last question I want to ask, and it's probably too early to know this, but in terms of the growth of the number of hectares of poppy production in Mexico, do we have any evidence to suggest whether that is at all connected with marijuana legalization in the United States. I actually kind of like this notion of the states as labs and they can experiment and we can see what happens. But I've, I've heard it said, and I don't know whether there's any evidence to back it up, that the legalization of marijuana in some states that has allowed marijuana to be grown has taken uh, hectares of land that were used for marijuana cultivation and well, we don't have a market for our marijuana anymore because there's competition, so we'll switch to something like poppies to produce black tar heroin. Is there any evidence of that? 
we, we've actually looked closely kind of at the, at, the, at the crop transference to see if there's anything there. And, and, and I can tell you that we, at this, at this time, whether it's too early or whether it doesn't exist, we can't definitively say that farmers have decided to switch from one crop to another in Mexico. We've, we, we can't say that with any, any degree of authority at this point. But that's something that you're going to continue to monitor. It's, to it's something that we do watch. Yes, great, sir. great. Thanks, Mr. Chair. To, as, to interject on that point, um, it's my sense, and you're both experts at this, that very few people wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to go shoot heroin right. just for the first time. There is a gateway to the heroin use. A lot of it is being driven by people that were prescribed prescription opiates. They now become physically dependent. The prescription opiate is cut off. They're going through severe withdrawal, and the only thing that addresses that withdrawal, if they're not in treatment, is access to heroin, and that brings all sorts of problems. Absent that, what is the other gateway? How are people, how does someone get dependent on heroin minus the, the prescription drug gateway, which we've already discussed? So, it, and that's a, it's a difficult question just because you're dealing with a number of variables down at the individual level as to the reasons why people in, engage in the behavior that we do. We do, we do know a couple things that heroin in general terms uh, is kind of at the end of a trajectory of long-term drug use, and that a high number of heroin users are actually polydrug users. And so uh, they're not an exclusive heroin user, they get the drugs that are available to them, and because of the high availability of heroin, a lot of times that's, that's heroin. Um, the, the other thing uh, that, that we look at, uh, and, and we do a number of surveys to look at this, but, but what we realize is that youth behavior from the ages of about 13 to about 18 uh, is, is a very strong factor in terms of risk-taking behavior, in terms of you know, underage drinking, tobacco, marijuana, things of that nature, and shaping youth attitudes eventually that they carry with them for the rest of their lives in terms of risk-taking behavior for using, uh, for using other drugs. So I think it would, uh, what we can't say is that we can put a finger on this or that particular reason why a person does something, but we do know that the, that the availability of drugs in society obviously uh, increases the chances that an individual who's inclined to use them is going to intersect them at some particular point. And I think that's one of the, with the discussion we had about the availability of heroin being but, the driving factor. So just to understand your testimony, we understand the, the pill problem that leads to that. But what you're basically saying is if someone, especially at some point early, earlier in their life, begins to use a substance, alcohol, uh, whatever it may be, an intoxicant of some sort, there now starts a potential trend where the next thing is, well, what's out there that's better? What's out there that's stronger? Once you've crossed that barrier, it could unleash this cycle of basically a set of dominoes that ultimately lead you to the, to the heroin point. Yeah, it, yes, and it's not, you know, and again, it's not direct causation, but it certainly is risk-taking behavior. Right, uh, And, you know, in, pat in patterns of, of, of behavior. And that's why the prevention strategies, uh, particularly through programs uh, like the Drug-Free Communities Program that, that, that ONDCP uh, manages, are incredibly important because they're locally based and uh, they, they allow... Uh, trusted individuals to be able to speak to people at very, very young ages about things just like that and their attitudes about drugs and foreign substances in the body and things of that nature. So uh, they're, they're able to, through evidence-based uh, prevention strategies, be able to talk to people at those young ages when they're vulnerable and shaping their ideas about drug use that they carry with them for the rest of their lives. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you for this hearing. I, I think this is the most important hearing we're going to have on our relations with uh, Mexico and with uh, 
China uh, this year in the Congress, and I thank you uh, for it. Um, this issue of uh, fentanyl is, uh, uh, to my way of thinking, kind of the most important threat that we have to families in the United States at this time. I'll just give you some numbers. In Massachusetts in 2015, 57% of the opioid-related overdose deaths in Massachusetts had a positive screen for fentanyl, specifically of the 1,319 individuals whose deaths uh, were opioid-related in 2015, where a toxicology screen was available, 754 of them had a positive screen for fentanyl. So we can talk about prescription drugs, we can talk about heroin, but fentanyl is now the issue. And we, that is New England, we're at the epicenter of it. It comes up from Mexico to Lawrence, Massachusetts, and then it uh, goes out into New Hampshire, other states, but Massachusetts as well. So the pathway is China, into Mexico, then into Lawrence, Massachusetts, into Ohio, into Virginia, into Florida. Uh, and, uh, and when it's over half of the deaths now in Massachusetts, it's clearly a looming threat that's a preview of coming attractions to every single city and town in our country. So that's why this hearing is so important, because it gets to the question of what is Mexico doing in partnership with China? We'll start with that, Mr. Foote. What is specifically Mexico and China at the highest governmental levels doing in order to interdict um, this new synthetic uh, a formula uh, that is lacing uh, heroin with a, a drug 50 times more powerful than heroin? So powerful that the DEA doesn't even let its dogs any longer sniff for fentanyl for fear that the dog will just die with the first sniff of fentanyl. That three grams, three equivalent of salt grams, okay, could kill a human being if they uh, gained access to it. What is Mexico and uh, uh, China doing in cooperation with you in order to interdict that drug? Senator, first I'll, I'll touch on Mexico and China's bilateral relationship on this. With our support, Mexico and China are meeting and discussing fentanyl regularly uh, every year. They are both involved in the multilateral side of things. Just last month at the UN General Assembly special session on drugs, they were both there. China, uh, their Minister of Public Security uh, led the conclusion statement, they were fully on board, and they are a member, both countries, to the three international drug conventions. Uh, we also sponsor in the United States two annual fentanyl and precursor chemical conferences with Mexico and China. So and how successful is this effort so far? That's a good question, Senator. Fentanyl is a new problem for the Department of State and, and INL. And it's one where we are applying lessons we've learned with other substances and in, in other crime areas over the year. And at this point, uh, we're working as hard as we can to have success, but I can't quantify H has success. Has it been elevated to the highest level? In other words, with human rights and uh, copyright infringement, uh, 
is uh, this issue now at the highest level of negotiations with the Chinese government and with the Mexican government? It is. Uh, Mr. Chester went down in March with our folks and spoke to a large interagency group headed by the Attorney General in Mexico on this issue. We regularly engage with China. Uh, our diplomats are going to China next week at, the, at, a, at a very high level diplomatic engagement where they will raise it. We raise it regularly in the joint liaison group on law enforcement, which has a counter-narcotics working group that meets throughout the year. And uh, we've actually seen some positive signs from China. Last year- what, uh, what is the evidence? If you were gonna convict them of doing something, what would the evidence be to convict them? To convict? Convict China of actually doing something to block this from coming into Mexico and then into the United States. What would the evidence be to convict them of doing good? Of doing good? Le doing last, good. okay. Uh, we've seen encouraging progress. There's still plenty to do. Last year, their Ministry of Public Security officially controlled 116 new substances, including several analogs of fentanyl, and they have expressed high receptivity in continuing to receive information on new synthetic substances to us to efficiently control them. So they are doing something. There, there is more that can yeah. be done. I, I, clearly. <laughs> We have the evidence in 2015 in Massachusetts, and it's going to be worse this year, in 2016, that uh, the slim evidence that this thing is being slowed down. In fact, it's very clear that it's intensifying, and it's going to kill, it's going to kill ultimately tens of thousands of Americans every year, every year. There's no other threat to our country that even matches that. Every single year, fentanyl's going to be able to do that. So if we don't stop it, it dwarfs every other issue. Every other issue will be a footnote compared to the magnitude of the impact on American families. Um, Mr. Chester, um, can we just go to Mexico? What, what is the level of cooperation that you are getting uh, from the Mexican government in interdicting fentanyl coming into the United States? We know it's El Chapo and his gang that's responsible for the traffic that comes up to Lawrence, Massachusetts, but pretty much for the whole country. What's your success level with the Mexican government, getting them to understand the magnitude of the threat to the American people? Senator, I would tell you that, that, that I, I personally have been down there twice and then have dealt with the, with the Mexican embassy uh, here in the United States. I, I will tell you that they understand um, how seriously we take this issue in the United States. They understand that this is our top illicit drug priority. And they also understand that it's not just heroin, but it is heroin and it is fentanyl. Uh, in a meeting down there in uh, February, I put fentanyl on the table. Um, and I won't say that it was a first heard for them, but they weren't really familiar with, the, with, with how seriously the issue was in the United States. By the time we had gone down to March uh, uh, later with Director Botticelli and Ambassador Brownfield, that was part of part of the problem set that they agreed to work with us uh, moving, moving forward on. So I will tell you that the Mexicans are, uh, understand the importance with, with, uh, that we place on this issue. They're very engaged on it, and they are willing to conduct joint planning with us on the issues not only of poppy eradication, which addresses the heroin issue, uh, but also lab identification and neutralization, uh, specifically on uh, issues of 
either uh, fentanyl creation or the milling of fentanyl with uh, dilutants and, and other inert matter as it's transported across the border? Well, it's a little bit disturbing to me if, from your testimony, it's a case of first impression for the principal law enforcement officials in Mexico that they're just hearing about fentanyl and it's just getting on their radar screen and it's February of 2016, uh, given the fact that more than half of all the people who died last year in Massachusetts, opioid-related, had fentanyl in their system. It's kind of a little bit disturbing to me. I'm going to be very honest with you. Um, and I don't like it to have just been introduced at that level. I would like to have heard that President Obama has raised this issue with the President of Mexico, that President Obama has raised this issue with President Xi in China, uh, just because of the incredible level of fatalities all across our country. And we know specifically what the source of the death is. Uh, and uh, and, uh, and I, 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 so do you mind if I just continue a little bit? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, so give me, give me some hope here that there's an aggressive strategy in place on fentanyl and that uh, it has been elevated to a level where there's a no-nonsense conversation going on in terms of what the expectations of our government is. Right, Senator. In, in response to your concern, I know that the president did raise this with President Peña Nieto, uh, the heroin, uh, uh, the opioid issue with uh, with the government of Mexico. And the fentanyl, he raised the fentanyl issue with them? Uh, I will check if it was specifically fentanyl, but I know the heroin issue was raised and the opioid issue was Well, raised. I'm asking about fentanyl here. Too. Right. Okay. Fentanyl is the epidemic. Fentanyl is the epidemic. Okay. It's not heroin, it's fentanyl. Fentanyl is 50 times more powerful. Fentanyl is what's showing up in a majority of the deaths. So you're not confident, you're not sure whether or not he has raised it. it. And I need to make sure that fentanyl was part of that conversation well, between uh, the two of them as well. How, but about, I you, how about you, Mr. Foote? Has the State Department specifically raised fentanyl at the highest levels with the Chinese government and the Mexican government? We continue to raise it at the highest levels of dialogue that we have. Next week... Uh, what is the highest level? Next week, our Deputy Secretary will be in China, and this is high on the agenda, if not top on the agenda. Uh, I cannot promise that President Obama raised it with President Xi, but certainly President Kerry has raised it with the Chinese government. Okay. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Just a, a couple of points that I wanted to raise. First of all, why Lawrence, Massachusetts? Why New Hampshire? Why are these communities specifically targeted? Uh, in Florida, for example, Central Florida, how does a community wind up targeted by these criminal gangs? What are the characteristics that are making them as opposed to some other part of the country? Senator, there, there are a number of variables, uh, one of which is the existing structure, the existing trafficker structure that's in place in particular areas. Uh, in some cases, it's transportation networks. In some cases, that the traffickers from Mexico have uh, personal or business relationships with traffickers in a particular area, uh, or that geographically a place lends itself to further distribution. Uh, there, there, there are a lot of reasons why particular... But, but the Northeast is far from the U.S.-Mexico border. I mean, my question is, why didn't they stop somewhere along I-95 and target there? I mean, how, how, how'd they wind? Is it because of these existing structures that were there before? We believe that, that there's very strong evidence that there are, that it's the existing structures uh, that, that were there before. When, when, and, and when we specifically talk about fentanyl, one of the, uh, one of the things that, uh, that we have looked at as, as, as we've tracked the, the, the fentanyl crisis is... 
uh, why the Northeast? Why the Eastern United States? Why so much not the Western United States? Uh, and we believe that one of the strong contributing factors uh, is the fact that uh, fentanyl is more easily mixed into the white powder heroin, which was preferred in the eastern part of the United States, than it is in the black tar heroin, which was preferred in the western part of the United States. And that's traditionally been the heroin market in the United States. And so uh, fentanyl introduced uh, is being mixed into powder heroin, and therefore it landed in the United States. And increasingly, we're starting to see it be pressed into pill form. Uh, and sold as counterfeit uh, oxy or counterfeit opioids. But it, fentanyl has found a market in the eastern United States probably because of those two reasons. Well, as you, uh, I spent some time in New Hampshire over the last year, and from that experience found myself in a lot of small townships, not large places throughout New England, that faced an overwhelming problem, almost as they were specifically targeted perhaps because trafficking networks knew that they had smaller police departments. You're a small township, you're not going to have a thousand officer department. Is there evidence that some of that is in play for these trafficking networks that in essence they look to set up in places where, local, where they can overwhelm local law enforcement with numbers and, and capabilities? Senator, there's, there, I, I don't know. I, I don't know whether uh, that was a, you know, the, the size of a population or the size of law enforcement was a particular reason why. Uh, but to your point, it, it is a matter of deep concern that, um, that you find increasing numbers of heroin or fentanyl users in rural areas who are starting to, starting to use the product alone. Uh, and, they're, and they're far from treatment, and they tend to be farther from first responders. Uh, those are all things that make this particular crisis particularly pernicious is the fact that it has moved into a lot of rural areas, which is not something that we've seen in previous outbreaks of heroin or opioids. And I know what I'm asking, and perhaps it's more appropriate to the second panel, is more of a domestic issue as opposed to the transnational one, but some of the stuff we used to hear where increasingly, because the supply is also driving the demand, it's not it's, it's, they're interrelated. In essence, the supply meant these traffickers who now had the supply on their hands had to be more aggressive in finding market share. And one of the things I kept hearing a lot were that they were specifically targeting treatment centers, especially outpacing treatment centers where they knew people were getting treatment because of addiction, and they were waiting for them outside to tempt them to buy, that they specifically were targeting recovering uh, individuals uh, for the sale of this. And this is a pernicious, disgusting industry that we're dealing with here. And, and in that realm, I wanted to ask, you know, since the arrest of El Chapo, uh, Secretary uh, Foote, you know, Mexico, this is part of Mexico's, I believe, a concerted policy uh, to conduct high-profile arrest of drug lords. And while it's positive that these organizations are being decapitated, have we seen any evidence that the arrest of a high-profile individual impacts the ability of these organizations to continue to function, specifically since El Chapo's arrest, is there any evidence that the operation has been impacted by it, or is it just one of those things that's now functioning the way a corporate entity would, irrespective of who's at, to at the top? Senator, while my personal experience uh, is far more robust with Columbia, where I led our programs uh, several years ago, uh, we have seen where the, the kingpin being arrested does certainly affect an organization. Uh, the question is, how big is the structure? How organized is it? And, and how quickly can it recover? That's a question uh, far better posed to our Drug Enforcement Administration guys than the state. Let me ask you about Columbia. It's not directly related to the opiate issue, but nonetheless, uh, cocaine. Um, they suspended their aerial eradication program ostensibly 
for fear of the impact that the defoliants would have on the population environmentally, there is a counter-argument out there that some have made in which I find some credibility in that this is also part of the peace process, that in essence, uh, this, this deforestation effort was and the eradication effort was an irritant in the peace process with the FARC and other elements. As a result, we now see numbers where, for the first time in a long time, there's been a massive increase in the amount of cocaine production in parts of Colombia that we hadn't seen in a while. And the assumption is that that cocaine's gonna get sold. It's gonna go somewhere and that we should expect at some point within the next couple of years to, be a new, uh, to see a spike in cocaine sales in the United States. Do you have a view, irrespective of the reason why they're doing it, do you have a view of what these new numbers mean for the U.S. in the years to come? We are concerned about the suspension of aerial eradication. It is a sovereign decision of President Santos and the Colombian government, obviously. Uh, we believe while eradication and aerial eradication are not magic pills, they are valuable tools in any supply-side intervention on narcotics. It has long been a, a big part of our strategy in Colombia. Uh, we continue to work closely with the Colombians on the successor to Plan Colombia, which is Paz Colombia, Peace Colombia, uh, and are in close contact to see which direction they decide to go if and when President Santos gets the peace process resolved. And here's my final question for the panel, and I thank you both for being here and for your testimony and for your work. The work you do is important and difficult. Um, we now have two separate but interrelated problems. The, uh, as the senators just pointed out a moment ago, the um, production of synthetic fentanyl, the growth of opiate poppies. My understanding is that the amount of opiate, poppy-based opiates grown in the Western Hemisphere is a small percentage of the overall production in the world. In your view, or, or, or you know this, how much, if, if, an op if a poppy-based opiate is produced or fentanyl is produced somewhere in the Western Hemisphere, Mexico or anywhere else, what percentage of that is destined for the United States in particular? Uh, Senator, we, we, we believe that Mexico is the primary supplier of heroin to the United States and that uh, the United States is the primary customer for Mexican heroin. Uh, that that relationship in, in the Western Hemisphere is fairly solid. We, don't, we do not see uh, any evidence, any widespread evidence of Southwest Asian heroin, Afghan heroin, um, you know, Burmese heroin coming to the United States, although we, the, Canadi uh, the government of Canada does believe that Southwest Asia is its primary supplier of, of heroin. So one of the things that we've uh, discovered as a risk and we have identified as a risk is if we are successful against the Mexican drug trafficking organizations in bringing down the supply of Mexican heroin to the United States, do we open up the door for, for, for others? But I think it's pretty in? clear that if you see a heroin overdose in the U.S., that heroin or that fentanyl came from Mexico or maybe in the case of fentanyl, China through the mail, okay? I that's think that's correct. pretty clear. Here's my question. Is the, is the opiates being grown or produced in the case of fentanyl in Mexico being sold anywhere else in the world or should we basically assume that virtually all of it that's being grown there. You can see it from, from the camera pictures are being taken. All of that is headed to a city near you in the United States. That, or, that is the assumption we make, Senator. Yes, that's correct. Well, I want to thank you both for being here. I pre Did you have a final question, Senator? Mind, no, please. No, I thank Important you. topic. I, I thank you so much. And again, this is, for me, this is the top topic. 
doesn't get any bigger than this, and these are the gentlemen responsible for it in the United States. So uh, <clears throat> to have them here to know that they're the principal people working on the fentanyl issue, I think, is absolutely uh, central. So uh, let me ask, uh, let me just ask you this, uh, Mr. Chester. Your title is uh, Associate Director for the National Heroin Coordination Group. Uh, do you think it's time for us to just change the name to the National Heroin and Fentanyl Coordination Group? Do you think we should change the name? Just so it advertises correctly what's going on to the American people? Senator, when we began our work uh, this fall as the Heroin Coordination Group, and after Director Botticelli stood up this group within ONDCP in order to provide uh, focused efforts against the heroin in the, in the fentanyl problem set, uh, in, in our work, what we determined is that we were going to handle heroin and, and fentanyl as part of the same problem set for a lot of different reasons. What, we have, what, what has evolved over time in our work and in our planning and in our work with the interagency is that we have, we have discovered the incredible importance of, of fentanyl more so than what was identified six or eight or, or nine months ago. The other important thing uh, about fentanyl that, that, I would, that I would like to bring up uh, is, is the fact that we, that the, the, um, the emergence and the uh, visibility of fentanyl is driven almost entirely by the, by the post-mortem testing that is done on individuals in overdose deaths around the country. And in those areas where the testing is done and fentanyl is tested as part of the toxicology panel, you begin to see more. So it leads us to believe that in, that in looking at both the heroin and fentanyl problem, we have a significant fentanyl problem, as you identified, that we believe was being masked by this increased availability in heroin. So we handle both of them as part of the same problem set, uh, simply because it allows us to be able to deal with the, the, the trafficking, the supply chain, and the effects on communities uh, in, in the exact same way. No, I appreciate that. So that's what I'm asking you. Should we, should we add fentanyl to your title, in your opinion? Does that make sense, given what you now know, and, and given how little Mexico, it turns out, knows when you had the conversation in February of 2016 about fentanyl, they did yes, not have it on their radar. Yeah. No, I, Should I, we raise it yeah. so that they understand? Same thing is true for the Chinese. What do you think? Um, it, the issue being raised to the Chinese, I think that. No, no, I'm talking about, oh, I'm talking in, about Mexico. Yeah, I'm talking it, specifically here about Mexico right now. They, they didn't know. Right. <laughs> in February. Right. In, 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 and by the way, even when I say 57%, a lot of people, a lot of experts think that's an understated number right. uh, because of the uh, poor reporting that goes on in terms right. of the total number of deaths. So, um, uh, and it, by the way, it's no secret why they do it. It's a 300% like markup, 300% right. uh, markup, you know, uh, in terms of the, their ability to make money off this as opposed to uh, heroin or or uh, uh, other drugs. So uh, again, uh, from my perspective, this is the issue. This dwarfs any terrorist threat to the United States. This is what's going to kill people, tens of thousands, ultimately hundreds of thousands of Americans. It's going to be this fentanyl that comes in to our country. Uh, you are the front line on this. Mexico just heard about it. I'm not sure the Chinese understands the priority that we uh, uh, expect um, them to uh, deal with this issue. Uh, maybe, Mr. Chester, earlier today you, you, in your testimony, you said that there are gaps, gaps in the interdiction of fentanyl from Mexico coming into the United States. 
Could you explain in more detail what those gaps are? It's, it, we're, we're speaking primarily about gaps in our ability to be able to detect fentanyl uh, at borders. And what was, what was brought up earlier uh, is the ability of canines, canines being trained in order to be able to detect fentanyl because, because it is so deadly. Um, and, and we work very closely with, uh, with CBP, both in terms of intelligence and in terms of policy, uh, to address those gaps to better detect fentanyl, not only at the southwest border, but in our air freight locations in the United States, whether it's US Postal Service or whether it's a, a commercial company. That has been an area of uh, ongoing discussion for us so that we can better determine how much fentanyl is getting into the country and to be able, uh, and to, be able to detect it when it does arrive. And, and whether that's detecting the chemical, the, the fentanyl itself, or the dilutant with which uh, it's mixed. Gentlemen, I, I apologize. We've got to move to the next panel. So, because at about uh, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, I have to preside over the floor. I turn into a pumpkin here. So, we've got to, <laughs> not literally, but. Uh, if, I, if I may just, just conclude, I, I would just strongly recommend to the administration that when the president meets with the, the presidents of Canada and Mexico, that he raises fentanyl to the uh, highest level with them and lets them know that that's the threat to our country. Um, and the same thing is true in any communication with the Chinese government, that it has to be at the highest level. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank, thank you, Senator Markin. This is an important issue in the Northeast and for the country, and I thank you both. And we're going to welcome our next panel. Uh, and in the interim, of, as we'll say at the end of the hearing, we keep the record open for a few days. If you receive any questions in writing, if you'd respond as quickly as possible so we can close the record. But we thank you both for being here. So as they're getting seated and situated, I'm going to once again reintroduce the members of our second panel. Uh, the Honorable Teresa Jacobs is the mayor of Orange County, Florida, uh, which we hope, if it's not yet been finalized, will be the site of the Pro Bowl in 2017, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> Maybe you can give us an update on that, too. So we're excited about it. And of course, Mr. Stephen Dudley, who's the co-director of Insight Crime. And, uh, Mayor, if you're ready to, for your testimony, has been submitted in writing, and we look forward to hearing you as well. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Chairman Rubio. And thank you for calling this very important hearing and allowing me to share a local perspective. Um, the conversation this morning has certainly been informative um, for me, as I'm sure it has been for everyone here. First, a little background on Orange County. Um, nothing that you don't know, but for the record. Orange County is home to the city of Orlando and 12 other municipalities. We have a strong economy and an exceptional quality of life. We have a population of 1.2 million people that call Orlando home. But we also have 66 million visitors on an annual basis, and we continue to shatter national records for tourism. That's the good news. The bad news and the very sad news is that we, like too many other communities across this country, have seen an alarming increase in the number of heroin overdoses and related deaths. I say heroin. When I say heroin, I mean opioids, opiates, I mean um, fentanyl, all of them combined. Last year, we lost 85 lives to heroin. We lost 62 lives to fentanyl. We've heard this morning testimony about uh, the increase in deaths related to opioids and opiates of anywhere from 200 to 400% since 2007. In Orange County, we've had a staggering 600% increase since 2011 alone. And already this year, we've had 90 reported opioid overdoses, about one in 10 re resulting in death. 
Florida's fight against this current wave of opioid addiction began about five years ago. You may recall that in 2010, Florida was known as the pill mill capital of the country. Florida practitioners were prescribing oxycodone at levels that exceeded all the other states in our nation combined. At a state and local level, we responded by outlawing unauthorized pain clinics. Yet today, the battlefront has moved. Today, we fight heroin. Today, we fight fentanyl. Given the dramatic rise in the flow of heroin, of heroin and fentanyl into our community, one can only surmise that drug cartels perceived us as a ripe marketplace. Unfortunately, it's nearly impossible to accurately assess the size of the heroin threat in Florida and across states in our nation. But there's a few things that we do know. In Orange County, we know that last year, approximately 2,000 heroin users moved through our county jail alone. And on any given day, we treat roughly 200 heroin addicts in our jail. We know that in 2015, our county jail housed 100 expectant mothers who were addicted, whose babies will most certainly be born tragically addicted to heroin. We know that over 60% of overdose patients are uninsured, and yet we have only one inpatient facility with 26 detox beds available to the uninsured for all four counties in our region with a combined population of two and a half million people. Simply put, we know that our county jail has become the treatment center of last resort for far too many people who find themselves addicted to heroin, fentanyl, and other opiates and opioids. For the good of our citizens, we're fighting back. And here's how. Last summer, we convened the Orange County Heroin Task Force, chaired by myself and our sheriff. Our joint work is having a positive impact, including the passage of the 2016 Florida Legislature, which passed a measure allowing naloxone sales without an individual prescription. And while there is no single cure or solution, we know there are some universally, approaches, uh, universally effective approaches, many of which have been discussed here today, but I think at the heart of it is that we have to recognize that we must address the demand side while we attack the supply side and an either-or policy simply won't work. On the demand side, through our task force, we've joined forces with our K-12 public education system, our universities, our faith-based communities, our um, medical communities. Together, we're launching a social media campaign to educate the public on the risks of this highly addictive and deadly drug. We are trying to convince our citizens and warn them in advance that this is something that they want to avoid at all costs. We are also not only treating heroin addicts in our jail, we are implementing a new medically assisted treatment program using Vivitrol. And this is an option for all of our addicts that are leaving our jail. But we need the federal government's help to treat more addicts. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, we are woefully short on beds and other resources. On the supply side, we're also doing our best to arrest traffickers on our streets. But our local efforts, no matter how highly leveraged and coordinated, are simply no match for the drug cartels and organized traffickers coming across our country's borders. And that's why we need your help to help stop the, the influx of drugs across our borders. To end the crisis, to save lives, to save communities. We each have a role to play. Local governments have a crucial role to play. The state government does and the federal government does. But the efforts need to expand beyond government. We need every citizen that is a mother or a father or a friend of an addict. We need our entire communities engaged. We need doctors, we need, we need the clergy, we need counselors, we need teachers, we need all of them to be informed. And that's why I think that we also need a nationwide awareness campaign. 
And we've talked briefly about fentanyl. It needs to include the high risk of fentanyl and the low cost. Quite frankly, today, it is less expensive for many of our addicts to get high on opioids than it is for them to go and get a Happy Meal. That is a sad state of reality that has to be addressed. Thank you again so much for this opportunity. Mr. Chairman, thank you for your and your committee's continued service and leadership on this issue. Thank you, Mayor, and thank you for your work on this. You've been involved in this for a while now, trying to deal with it back when the pill mill problem was going on. And Absolutely. we'll talk about that in, in the questioning section. Mr. Dudley, thank you for being here. We look forward to your testimony. Thank you very much, Chairman Rubio. Uh, as we know, U.S. consumption of heroin has increased significantly in the last few years. The U.S. portion of the world heroin market is quite small by comparison in terms of users, but really outsized in terms of potential earnings. The Rand Corporation estimated in 2014 the U.S. consumers spent as much as $27 billion on heroin each year, an increase uh, from $20 billion in the year 2000. Mexican, Guatemalan, and Colombian criminal organizations have reacted to these changes by producing more heroin. Uh, as noted already in the earlier panel, Mexico accounts for the bulk of the poppy production in the region. Um, seizure data of heroin along the southwest border also indicate that Mexican criminal groups are moving increasing amounts of heroin into the U.S. market. Mexican criminal organizations are also the key transporters of Colombian heroin to the United States, and they manage and purchase the heroin produced in Guatemala or buy the opium gum wholesale to process it into heroin themselves in Mexico. Inside the U.S., the trend appears to be the same. The DEA says that Mexican groups are seeking an increasing amount of the market share in the distribution business itself, displacing other wholesalers. In sum, the picture we have is one of an increasingly lucrative, vertically integrated market with large crim Mexican criminal organizations managing the product from the point of production to the point of sale and seeking a greater market share of these sales. The reality of the supply chain, however, is much more complex. While it helps us to use well-worn monikers when talking about these organizations, the truth is that they are not nearly as strong or monolithic as they once were. Names such as the Tijuana Cartel, the Juarez Cartel, the Setas, or La Familia Michoacana may still evoke fear and sometimes awe, but they are not organizations as much as brand names. In many cases, the individual parts of the organization have as much contact with the bosses as a local Coca-Cola bottling plant manager might have with corporate headquarters. Even the vaunted Sinaloa cartel is more horizontally than vertically integrated. Take the recent case of the Flores brothers in Chicago. Before they were arrested, Pedro and Margarito Flores were said to be Sinaloa cartel distributors in Chicago, one of the areas of greatest interest to this subcommittee. And they were. But as federal intercepts of their conversations with cartel leaders show, the two brothers negotiated independently with each of the top two members of the Sinaloa criminal organization, obtaining different prices um, for the product that they were selling. Even after, the, even after a war started between the Sinaloa cartel and a rival group called the Beltran Leva Organization, the Flores brothers continued to purchase drugs from portions of the Beltran Leva Organization and the Sinaloa cartel. The Flores case cuts at two different myths about the Sinaloa cartel. Number one, that this is one single organization. And number two, that it is tightly controlled by a single leader or a single group of leaders. The point is that as shipments get further and further from Mexico's wholesale points, the loyalties become more dispersed and in some cases completely disappear. This is especially true in the US market where violence is not a viable long-term option to ensure loyalty, win market share, or become a monopoly. 
The effectiveness of U.S. law enforcement has made violence terrible for business and made the distribution chain more democratic, more capitalist to fair. This is evident in other ways as well. While the amount of seizures indicates that there is more heroin available in the United States, it is still moved in very small quantities. The median seizure for the Los Angeles uh, Field Division of the DEA in 2014, for example, was a single kilogram. In, De in Denver, a 10 to 12 pound shipment is considered large. The case of the Laredo brothers, recently indicted in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, is indicative of these trends. The Laredo brothers are charged with moving one ton of heroin over a six-year period. This is about 14 kilos per month. The organization was so subtle, and as one Mexican analyst put it, mom and pop, the Mexican authorities were not even aware of the group. This brings us to Mexico. The most, um, excuse me, the horizontal nature of the distribution chain makes it a difficult law enforcement problem, problem in Mexico as well. As noted, the once monolithic criminal organizations are shells of what they once were. This is in part due to infighting of the type mentioned earlier, but also Mexican law enforcement efforts. Many of the fragmented pieces have formed their own criminal organizations and brand names. The upshot is that the chain of production in Mexico is broken into numerous pieces, including small and large producers of opium poppy plants, the opium gum producers, the processors, the wholesale purchasers, and the transporters. Production, transport, and distribution may all be different organizations. The Laredo brothers, for example, were purchasing opium gum from an independent broker, then processing it themselves and distributing it in those small quantity quantities in the U.S. for years without running into trouble with the large, supposedly all-controlling Sinaloa cartel. To be sure, violence is still a viable option in Mexico, so the pendulum may swing back towards more monolithic criminal organizations. But for the moment, the reality is that there are literally dozens of small criminal organizations involved in this trade from the point of production to the point of sale. In sum, while the level of control that the Mexican production and transport groups exert over the supply chain is clear, we are not talking about one or two criminal groups, but dozens of interlocking organizations whose alliances are constantly shifting. The heroin supply chain appears to be a largely horizontal, diversified operation with multiple actors, and one that is obedient to market forces rather than one or two single vertically in integrated distributors. The result is that law enforcement efforts are largely muted. Whether you debilitate the Sinaloa cartel or the Laredo brothers, you are hindering a small part of the overall production and distribution chain. Even if you did slow the heroin from Mexico, you would face an insurmountable task, stopping the flow from other countries, which would undoubtedly fill the void and account for the bulk of worldwide production anyway. Canada already gets up to 90% of its heroin from Afghanistan. And the United States once got all of its heroin from the Asian markets that supply the rest of the world. Thank you for your time and attention. I look forward to your questions. Thank you both for being here. Um, I want to begin with one of the questions I alluded to during the testimony, and that is my, I can't prove it, but, but well, I guess it's been anecdotal. We don't have a number behind this, but um, the notion that these criminal groups are specifically targeting people recovering, um, in essence, they basically station themselves outside of a rehabilitation outpatient center, even an inpatient center, knowing that these people are vulnerable, um, and enticing them to fall back into addiction. Have we seen, Mayor, have you seen evidence of this? Mr. Dudley, have you heard about this as a recurring issue? 
um, a, a specific practice at the local level of targeting people in recovery uh, for sales. Um, I have not seen evidence of targeting our treatment facilities. I will say that it does, it certainly appears on the surface that there has been a targeting um, effort towards which communities uh, to infiltrate with heroin. And certainly I, I look to the increase in heroin coming into our communities, um, the increase of fentanyl at the same time that we were restricting access to um, prescription drugs as uh, suspecting that there's a strong correlation between those two and a causation between those as well. But I, I don't have direct evidence of it. It just seems hard to imagine that there wouldn't be um, a, a direct relationship between them. Um, thank you, Senator. I, I, I also don't have direct evidence of, of this activity um, on a local level. I will say in Mexico that uh, criminal groups have targeted uh, recovery facilities, but more as recruitment centers, not necessarily recruitment as centers, recruitment for centers for them, for their own to basically build out their own uh, criminal operations. Um, in, you mean for like dealers? Not for dealers, just for memberships. So you know, people who would participate in the criminal organization. So that that has certainly happened, especially with regards to Familia Michoacana, one of a very famous group there. The the. The, the upshot of this is, is, um, is to say whether or not they're, they're targeting, uh, to pushing drugs in, in certain areas, um, I'm not sure is, is as relevant as the, as the sort of whole picture, which is um, what the mayor alluded to, which is this idea that you know, this is uh, largely driven from uh, former people who use pharmaceutical drugs. And those, those people you can find all over. And that, that accounts also for the sort of dispersed nature of this uh, epidemic, as opposed to sort of the 1970s, where you had it very concentrated in urban areas. Now we have it spread out throughout many different parts of the United States. So I want to share with you an anecdote this weekend. I uh, have a personal friend who's a police officer in Miami-Dade County. And he recounted a story that he pulled up to a car that was kind of pulled over on the side of the road. And uh, there was a woman in the driver's seat. She was kind of slumped over, and it caught his curiosity. So he pulled over and knocked on the window. This was a nice car, by the way. Obviously, this is a person of financial means. Knocks on the window, and the person immediately pops to attention. And he can see that in her arm, there was a needle. She was basically shooting up on the side of the road in a luxury vehicle. Knocks on the window, rolls down the door. Uh, sorry, knocks on the window. She rolls down the window. They begin to interact. Obviously, he's have his decision to make about how to treat her. This is someone who said 10 years ago he would have arrested her and taken her in as a criminal using drugs in the street. Uh, today, his perception has changed because he's had several interactions, including this interaction with a, a, a person who, by the way, is a member of the Florida Bar, is, an, is an, a successful, functional attorney whose husband apparently also has a problem. The fundamental challenge he faces, he doesn't want to take her to jail. He doesn't view her as a criminal. He views her as someone who has a disease and is in need of treatment to overcome it. And by the way, her gateway in heroin was the use of a pharmaceutical painkiller for a surgical procedure six or seven years ago, which she lost access to the medicine, and this is what's happened. And so the concern that I have is twofold, and perhaps you can both opine on this. Number one, if today you are um, dependent upon an opiate substance, uh, irrespective of how you got there, but let's say in the case of this person because of the use of a pharmaceutical that led to this point, 
there is still an extraordinary stigma associated with it as if you are a bad person who's doing a really bad thing and, and needs to be punished for it. And second, even if that stigma were to change so that we can get more people on the treatment and accepting the fact that I am a, you know, dependent, physically dependent on the substance, in many communities there is nowhere to take them. The only place you can take them potentially is to a jail where you hope their withdrawals are managed uh, but may not be. And in essence, there's nowhere for them to go. We have many places we just don't have the capacity to meet that reality, which leads to the third problem, and that is the number of people who end up in a jail cell for 15 days, go through withdrawal, do not realize they have lost uh, their tolerance, even in that short period of time, and when they fall off the proverbial wagon, they go back to using the levels they were using before they went through withdrawal, and it kills them because they lost their tolerance for an opiate. So given that perspective, I'm sure there are hundreds if not thousands of cases like that. What are the impediments to getting someone who faces this now who, I don't think so, but could be watching C-SPAN at this very moment, not very people, many people watch C-SPAN, but are watching this or are hearing us talk about this. What, what, what's out there today or what is missing for someone who needs this treatment and just doesn't know what to do about it next? Because especially for the uninsured, there aren't very many options from my understanding. Um, thank you. Mr. Chairman, and that, I think that is a key part of addressing the demand side. Part of it is to educate people and help them make the right choices to avoid overuse of prescription drugs. But the other part is how do we provide the resources to treat people that are addicted? And the treatment options are very limited. Um, for the uninsured, as I pointed out, 26 beds for 2.4 million people. Our jail alone, one out of four jails in the, in the region, we have on average 200 people that we're treating for withdrawal symptoms and um, offering them a treatment program when they leave. We need more treatment facilities. When you ask me the question, are, um, are traffickers, are dealers preying on people coming out of treatment centers? The reality is we don't have enough treatment centers to, to prey on. You, you, um, you said in your testimony, and I don't want to interrupt, but you said in your testimony you believe that Florida was specifically targeted because they knew we had the pill mill problem, and once that was cut off, these folks were going to need. Exactly. I, that's what I believe. I don't have empirical evidence. It, what I have is the evidence of the increase in the flow of heroin and the increases in deaths related to heroin um, at the, in correlation to our cutting off the pill mills. Let me also say that while we were um, dispensing more oxycodone than the rest of the country combined out of Florida, most of that was leaving our state. And most of these uh, pill mills, you could drive up and you could look in the parking lots. The parking lot would be full and only a small percentage of those were local uh, license plates. Yeah. So it, the cartels may have misjudged the appetite, but they, no question, have flooded us with very, very cheap drugs. And the, um, the number of youth that I have seen um, that are struggling with addiction and have have turned the corner and have been able, have had the, the good fortune and the money to find treatment, um, the insured portion of that population to see that there actually is life after heroin addiction is very encouraging. But what's very discouraging is that most people that are addicts have no idea there's life and most people that are addicts have no opportunity to get to those treatment centers. The, the, just to fill in the gaps on those who may not fully be aware of the Florida pill mill problem, we had these facilities. You just basically pulled up and said, my neck hurts or my back hurts, 
And by routine, they would give you a package of prescriptions. It wasn't just, by the way, Oxy. It was, they also put some other stuff in there. And people knew this, and you would have busloads of people actually come in sometimes. It was a huge problem. The Florida legislature closed that loophole that was allowing this to happen. So just to be fair, these, we're not talking about the prescription, the Oxy prescriptions being driven by a doctor at his, his or her office. It was these specific facilities that drove it. Um, did, did you want to add something on the treatment part of it? Because I had just, one more question I know that Senator Kane just, just very quickly. I mean, this is, this is obviously framed as a law enforcement debate, and certainly I was asked to talk about the criminal organizations. Um, but as you rightly pointed out, this is, this is a public health issue. I mean, this, at, at the heart of it, this is a pharmaceutically driven epidemic, and it's a public health issue. And, and, that's, and that's really the, the difficulty in, in, in facing up to this, is that it isn't necessarily a strictly law enforcement. We're not talking about throwing people into jails. You know, we need to be talking about how to get them better treatment. The, and, and my sense on the, on the human side of it is, I don't believe anyone wakes up in the morning and says, today is the day I become a heroin addict or an opiate addict. It doesn't, no one, this is not something somebody wants to happen. You just see growing evidence. People don't realize the power of this. There's no responsible way to use this. And its impact on everybody's a little different. We know some people are more sensitive or susceptible to addiction than others, but it basically restructures the brain's chemistry in a way a disease would, and it has to be treated as that. I look at these statistics, the, for example, in Florida, just as an example, uh, Orlando has 83 heroin deaths in 2014. Significantly, I mean, other communities have large numbers, West Palm Beach at 51, Miami at 60, Sarasota at 55, but that number pops out at you as a place that's been specifically targeted. And then you see the rise in deaths and the kind of the spike we've seen in, uh, across the country in heroin and opiate deaths, where the, real, where the takeoff point has been is the introduction of fentanyl, uh, which, as we've already seen from testimony today, is an incredibly powerful and lethal uh, substance, which, in fact, from my understanding, is not prescribed outside of a hospital setting to begin with on the pharmaceutical side and is now being laced into, um, and, and I, wanna, I wanna go to Senator Kane, so I wanted to leave with this thought. I read the other day a report where one, someone who was a former, he's now a recovering addict, was asked about this and said, you know, when you hear that someone has died from an overdose that was sold by a particular dealer, it makes you wanna buy from that particular dealer because you know what they're selling is the strong stuff. That was, now maybe that's just one interview, one line somebody said, but it just kind of tells you the point we've reached here where it's a, it is a very difficult and debilitating condition uh, that we have to, uh, un trying to understand here. And I think one of the keys is to remove the stigma associated with it. And I think many of us would be very surprised at the number of people we interact with on a daily basis that at some level have a dependence problem, maybe not through street heroin, but of some sort as a result of what we've seen happen in this country. And, and, and hopefully we can make advances in pharmaceuticals so that we can draw the line and, and we'll be able to treat pain effectively in this country without putting people at risk. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and, and thanks to each of you. I'm sorry I missed your uh, opening testimony, although I read your written testimony. Madam Mayor, I'll start with you. I was a mayor, too, um, in Richmond, and um, it was only when I was mayor that I really fully grasp the depths of the demand side of this challenge, that you know you can arrest a dealer and arrest another dealer and arrest another dealer, but if the demand for drugs is so potent, if it has its hooks in people so deeply, that the next dealer will appear tomorrow. We, we had a really tough problem in Richmond, and a lot of drug-related homicides were taking place in this little neighborhood where, uh, where, near where the church that I go to is. 
and the number of stories that would appear on the front page of the paper about somebody from the suburbs coming in to buy drugs and getting shot at the corner of 2nd and Maryland or wherever, and you would think about five of those stories, people would quit driving in to buy drugs there, but no, they, they would keep driving in to buy drugs, and that just was an evidence of how powerful addiction is, that you would have all this objective evidence like, wow, this is really gonna be dangerous for me to go here, much less that the drugs could be dangerous, I could get shot, but I, the need is so intense that I'm still gonna go. And it sounds like you know, you've seen that in, in, in your community. You know, I was mayor 20 years ago, the drugs were different, but it's the same thing of, of this addiction. And that's why the treatment issues are so important. And the other thing we used to hear anecdotally, I'm not a, you know, an expert in this field, but when somebody who is under the grip of an addiction says, I want treatment, you know, that, that's a window that opens where you know, the treatment if it's not there, the window could close. And in a month from now, when the bed opens up, the individual may be past the point of wanting treatment, may have OD'd or may have been, you know, lapsed back into behaviors where not desiring treatment. So I do appreciate what the chair was saying and you were saying too about the need for treatment. I'm curious if you could talk about, as a mayor, the way to solve some of these challenges is definitely through, you know, heavy partnerships, state, federal. Talk a little bit about what you've done in your county to, to, on the partnership side, how many state, do, do you have the right stakeholders around the table? Are there things we can do from a federal level to ensure that if we're, you know, issuing funds that we do it in a way that requires regional cooperation or multi-level stakeholder cooperation? Well, thank you, Senator. I think, um, red is on, huh? <laughs> red is off in Orlando. Red <laughs> is on here. I'll get used to this. Um, in, in Orlando, one of the things, that I think we have done very effectively is regional cooperation and collaboration. And I think that that is crucial on tackling any large issue such as this. And so one of the, the reasons that we pulled together the task force that we did is we, pr we brought in so many different disciplines to make sure that we could, we could um, attack this problem from all angles. And um, so I would suggest that as we, it, it's so important, we have limited resources at all government levels. And it always seems like that demand for resources outpaces supply. So it is important that programs are structured in a way that the funding is put to its best use. Um, and I do think that collaborative effort is important. We have a Metropolitan Bureau of Investigation that pulls together um, our FDLE, uh, FDA, um, our local law enforcement, our police officers, our sheriff, our state attorney's office. Um, that has been very effective for us on um, on the enforcement side of this. In terms of um, your, your comments about that window of opportunities for, for addicts, um, I, I, I can't understand it either because I, I, I've never experienced a feeling of needing something so badly that I'm willing to risk my life to have it. But I do understand that is the reality. I know enough people, I have come, it, once we formed the task force, enough people came forward on literally walked up to me on the street. You know what it's like being a local mayor. Mm -hmm. um, people recognize you, they come up, and, and they pour their heart and soul out to you. And it's, it's a blessing to be at that level mm -hmm. where you can really hear firsthand. And I have seen young people that you would never in your wildest imagination have thought were heroin addicts tell me their stories. And what I also saw, I think I mentioned before you walked in here, was I also saw the other side. I saw that they came out the other side of heroin addiction and they're living full lives and they're getting college degrees and they're gonna be productive members of society. 
And I think that most heroin addicts do not believe that's a possibility. And if they have that moment, if it's 15 minutes, if it's two hours, if it's two a days, where they say, gosh, I want to kick this, the reality is they're not going to be waiting for two weeks or a month. They're going to be waiting a lot longer in most of our communities to get into a treatment facility unless they've got a substantial amount of money. And that is a huge problem. And as I said um, in my testimony, the, the best option is our county jail right now. And that is a lousy option. Yeah, right. um, not to say we have a bad jail, we do our best. But having a, 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 a record does mm -hmm. not help the situation. So we really need to have options available. We need to have education. We need to have hope. We need to have an entirely, a whole communities that are engaged. And it's, as you point out, it's destroying more than lives. It's destroying entire communities. Thank you, sir. We had a, uh, uh, Mr. Chair, a chart recently placed before us at another hearing um, about uh, ODs per capita, opioid-based ODs per capita, the 50 states arrayed, and it, it was unlike any chart I've ever seen, ever. Uh, if you look at a chart that's usually about some kind of a problem or crime or social breakdown, high-income states will be at one part of the chart and low-income states will be at the other part of the chart. If you looked at the top 10 most affected states, they included some of the poorest states in the country and some of the richest states in the country. And if you looked at the bottom 10 affected states, they included some of the poorest states in the country and some of the richest states in the country. This is really unlike any sort of similar epidemic or law enforcement problem I've ever seen in that traditional demographic data, not at all a predictor. It's, it's, it is rural, urban, suburban. It is, you know, all regions. The, I went to a drug court graduation. Uh, the, the, the kind of founding drug court in Virginia is in the Roanoke area. And the, and the judge who founded it, who was this super you know, far-sighted thinker about the need for drug courts, had a child who many years later was killed in a drug-related incident. And, and after I spoke at the graduation, one of the probation officers who helps the court run and has done so as a spectacular advocate that for many years came up to me and said, this is my second drug court graduation this week. I said, oh wait, did you have another class? He said, no, I went to my son's graduation in a community about you know two hours from here. This affects every level and that, that is why we're now spending the time that we are, but we haven't spent time in this committee on it and it's really important that we do so because uh, this is not a it, just like it doesn't have demographic borders, this is not a problem that even has national borders, and we've got to grab a hold of some of the dimensions, Mexico, China, the other nations that are experiencing this, and, and build those partnerships, not even in a, you know, in, a, in a metropolitan region, but we've got to build law enforcement and other partnerships internationally. Thank you for being here for your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank Kerr. you, Senator. And, and I just wanted to ask you, Mr. Dudley, about these transnational groups that are targeting us. Um, I think in your testimony you talked about this. I just want to reiterate it. And uh, again, if there is whether it's fentanyl being produced synthetically or uh, poppy-based opiates being grown in the Western Hemisphere, in particular Mexico, they're coming here. This is the almost exclusive market for these trafficking networks. Is that correct? That's correct. Absolutely. It's um, there. There's a small market, uh, local market that they can satisfy, but it's, it's minimal. So, yeah, I mean. You heard the testimony before, because you would think, so logically, they're crossing the border. You would think if the easiest, from a uh, logistical point of view, is for them to flood it into Texas or flood it into California or into a border state. But you're hearing 
where the outbreaks are, and this is a national problem, I mean, there's no community in the country that doesn't face it to some level, but you see these outbreaks in the Northeast, in New Hampshire, in Massachusetts, and in places like Central Florida. Uh, so it's not even I-10 alone where you'd think it'd come across. What is your view of how is it winding up in these pockets? What are the distinguishing characteristics? You heard the previous testimony of the government witnesses. What, in your view, is the distinguishing characteristics that turn a community into a high propensity, high risk area? You know, it's, it's such a new, a new phenomenon because it's so dispersed. But the, the fact that it's so dispersed um, is really what leads to the, the, the criminal organizations being so dispersed. And the, the notion that we have one single uh, all-encompassing enemy it's called the Sinaloa cartel, and once we incarcerate Chapo Guzman, then everything will be resolved is, is just simply not correct, just because of the dispersed nature of the market and the way in which these criminal organizations will satisfy that market. This is, um, you know, it, it's an odd thing because in a way it's a, you know, there, there are certain elements of this, uh, of this epidemic that w were victims of our own success. The, uh, the fact that you would uh, create ways so you can't tamper with Oxycontin, for example. You know, you can't snort it anymore. You know, the, the sort of the way in which it's distributed, well, then that makes it less available to people, so then they start to search out other things. The way in which the Mexican government, in conjunction with the United States government, has captured or killed several of the larger... Uh, leaders of the, of the criminal organizations, um, of the larger criminal organizations, has led to a, a fragmentation of these groups. Uh, so you have groups like uh, you referred to Guerrero earlier, there's a Guerreros Unidos group, which was the group responsible for the massacre uh, or supposed massacre of those 43 students that disappeared, 43 students currently still. Um, you know, this is a group that was an offshoot of a larger group, the Beltran Leva organization, and there are several like them. So in order to, to, to wrap your hands around this as a law enforcement issue, it's incredibly difficult because the, because the terrain is so much more horizontal than vertical. You t and even when you take out the larger leaders, what you're left with is a fragmented uh, criminal landscape. And a landscape that doesn't necessarily, as in the cocaine market, they might depend on getting product from another country. In fact, they do, from the Andes, from the Andes region. They need to get their product from other criminal organizations. But they don't have that dependency when it comes to um, the, the, the sort of poppy production, which is local, and the heroin production, which is local. So they, they can produce all of this themselves, which makes it much more difficult to wrap your hands around as well. Well, uh, do you have anything further, Senator? I, I want to thank both of you for being here, uh, for sitting through the previous testimony. I hope that was insightful as you go back and continue your work. And I want to thank you for coming here today and being a part of this hearing as well. This is an important issue. And I, we, we, there's been a lot of debate about what's being done domestically on this issue. I'm glad we touched on it. But I think this has to be dealt with. There's not like one law we can pass that deals with this. It has to be dealt with comprehensively, whether it's on the treatment side for people to recover, on the prevention side, but also by targeting these organizations uh, who are in the business of murder, basically, which is what this ultimately is. And not just murdering each other for territory, but the direct murder of Americans by targeting us with the distribution of this, these uh, products in our country. So I want to thank all of you for being here. I also want without, uh, to ask consent to enter a statement for the record of Jack Riley, who's the acting deputy administrator of Drug Enforcement Administration. 
and without objection, I'll so that ordered. The record for this hearing is going to remain open until the close of business on Tuesday, May 31st. You might receive some questions in writing. If possible, I'd ask you to respond uh, just so we can close the record on this. And with that, I thank you both for being here, and I, this meeting is adjourned.